to another episode of the Mikey Bard Show. Today, we are going to be talking about the one true sentence. It's a writing storytelling technique coined by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, if you're familiar with Ernest Hemingway, he's a 20th century author from America. Um, oh, he's born in 1899. He died, obviously he's died a long time ago, uh, but he's very famous for uh, his works such as The Old Man and the Sea, um, Pulitzer Prize winning, um, he won a Nobel Prize as well, uh, but he also had a very legendary lifestyle, should we say. Uh, he was a hard drinker, a big game hunter, fearless soldier, amateur boxer, I think he did bullfighting as well. He was a nutter, alright? What do you want to say? But he came up with some really good, useful techniques for writing. But let's let's hear let's read some of his quotes as well, because he said some really amazing quotes really quickly. Ernest Hemingway said, Courage is grace under pressure. There is nothing to writing. All you have to do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. And let's read some of his poetry very quickly. You are not your age, nor the size of the clothes you wear. You are not a weight or the color of your hair. You are not your name or the dimples in your cheeks. You are all the books you read. You are all the words you speak. You are your croaky morning voice. All the smiles you try to hide. You are the sweetness in your laughter and every tear you've cried. You're the songs you sing so loudly when you know you're all alone. You're the places you've been to and the one that you call home. You're the things that you believe in and the people that you love. You're the photos in your bedroom and the future you dream of. You're made of so much beauty, but it seems you forgot when you decide that you were defined by all the things you're not. Let's hear about some facts about Ernest Hemingway and his legendary life. Hemingway once survived two plane crashes in two days in 1954. Newspapers said he was dead. And he was actually one of the only people in the world that have actually read his own obituary. He was a grandfather of actress models Margot and Mario Hemingway. In 1954, Hemingway was awarded the Nobel Prize for literature for his powerful, style-forming mastery of the art of modern narration. For the old man in the sea. He donated the medal to the people of Cuba. Okay, baby. We love the medal, baby. You come back anytime. Best tips and a hack that will help you for your storytelling. Um, and people say, write like Hemingway. Because um, Hemingway was a genius. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Okay, But even Hemingway found it difficult to write stories himself. Um, so yeah, Hemingway struggled. And he wrote this great quote. Um, which demonstrates his point, and this is what you need to do. Sometimes when I started on a new story and I couldn't get going, I would sit in front of the fire and squeeze the peel of the little oranges into the edge of the flame and watch the sputter of blue that they made. I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, don't worry, you have always written before, and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence you know. 
So that's the theory, the one true sentence. That was the true sentence within the, within the story, which was, do not worry, you have written before, and you will write now. That's the true sentence, and that was encased into that little story about the orange pills, and he's sitting there. The idea that what you need to do to get started to write is one true sentence is one that lots of authors and story theorists have used and found to work. Ernest Hemingway called it the one true sentence. In story, Robert McKee calls it the controlling idea. And in the art of dramatic writing, uh, Lejos Egri calls it the premise. But they're all talking about the same thing, which is what are you trying to say? So we call that the truth, uh, call it the controlling idea, call it the premise, whatever, but we call it the truth, yeah? We, what we need to do is to think about what we want the audience or the reader to come away from the story believing. We want to change their minds, and that's the question, you see. What do you passionately believe? What makes you want to grab people by the shoulders and shake them until they agree with you? That's the one true sentence. Lejos Egri, in The Art of Dramatic Writing, says, No idea and no situation was ever strong enough to carry you through to its logical conclusion without a clear-cut premise. And because it's your story, you can metaphorically grab the reader by the shoulders and shake them until they listen. Robert McKee, in the book The Story, he says, Storytelling is the creative demonstration of truth. A story is the living proof of an idea, the conversion of an idea to action. A story's event structure is the means by which you first express, then prove your idea without explanation. Okay? It's kind of like the show don't tell, isn't it? So that's the thing to think about. Don't worry about characters yet. Don't worry about the setting. Don't even worry about the plot. Think about something that you think is true. Write it down. Make it the truest thing in the world truest thing in the world so grabbing people and shaking them they're gonna hate you if you do that right um but if you write a story that just expresses that one true sentence the story will be what you call preachy as well which is not very fun and abandons the core of storytelling so you're gonna need a little bit of conflict you're gonna need a sentence of doom as they call it so what it is is you write the most evil thing you can think of write something that's false it's basically the exact opposite of what the truth is. What we need to do is personify the conflict by introducing some characters. We can use the archetypal characters from archetypes that make your story resonate to personify our story. Probably the protagonist is on the side of the truth and the antagonist is on the side of falsehood, right? Or perhaps the story is more complicated, it's up to you. But you can start thinking about the personification of the conflict and when it comes to plotting when you have your one true sentence and your sentence of doom and your archetypal characters to personify both sides of the story you can now think about illustrating the conflict something needs to happen basically uh, so here's some examples of a one true sentence um in a in a spy fiction genre so this is a writer trying to write some uh, a spy fiction they don't know this plot they don't know the characters but they need to write one true sentence they wrote something like this there's no moral high ground in espionage yeah simple as that 
That's a true statement. Their truth, right? There's no moral high ground in espionage. And you can base a story on that, right? Okay, so how is there no moral high ground? Who has a moral high ground in the story? That's the character right there. Who doesn't? So, yeah, things to remember on this, that you might not agree with any of these true statements, uh, these true sentences, but the author believes in them, which is the point. Uh, so you've got to start writing your own uh, one true sentences. So if you've got a bit of writer's block, put your own down. And then use that to expand, right? That's, that's, that's great of us. So those were your writing tips. Um, also, we're looking up some fun facts as well. Um, these were some of the best answers on Cura, which is one of those websites where geniuses answer um, questions put in by the public. Why don't Einstein's descendants inherit Einstein's IQ? That's one of the one of the top search questions, and here's the answer to it. And it's one of the best answers, apparently, top voted. They did to an extent. The answer is, but first, let's step back a little bit and talk about IQ. Heritably, IQ is highly heritable and that heritably is largely driven by genes from 50% to more than 70% according to most estimates, some going as high as 90%. However, there are a few things to take into account when you are talking about exceptionally intelligent people. First, you have the fact that Einstein's children obviously also have a mother and therefore inherited their IQ from her as well. Um... Maleva Marek, Einstein's wife, was also pretty smart. In fact, she contributed to some of Einstein's work, but assuming she was less smart than Einstein, that would have been a factor driving the children's IQ down. There's a concept of regression towards the mean. What this tells us is that if both your parents are exceptional in a certain respect, you will probably be exceptional in that respect as well, but not as much as your parents. So if both your parents are geniuses, you might be just as smart as them. You might even be smarter than them, but more likely you would be pretty smart, but not quite as smart as them. So now onto Einstein's descendants. The thing you have to understand is that Einstein's family have been played with health problems. You see, Einstein had three children. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, Lissell, who died in infancy. Uh, and Edouard, who was a promising medical student, but then started developing schizophrenia and spent most of his life in hospitals. And then you got Hans Albert Einstein, pretty brilliant scientist. He was a professor of hydraulic engineering at UC Berkeley and was the world's foremost expert on sediment transport. That might not sound as impressive as his father's achievements, but that still makes him a pretty smart person. Hans Albert's children, again, had many health problems that characterized the first generation of Einstein's descendants. Hans Albert had four biological children, but only one of them, Bernard Einstein, survived to adulthood. Bernard Einstein was a pretty smart guy. He became a physicist, worked in engineering for Texas Instruments and Litton Industries, and received half a dozen U.S. patents in his life. That's pretty decent, but that's not quite as a great achievement as his grandfather. Bernard had five children, but was unable to find um, information on them. I assume they had lives pretty similar to their father's, pretty successful by normal standards, pretty unsuccessful compared to their great-grandfather. Um, so final points, um, here's the thing. I have the IQs of none of these people, not even Einstein, I don't know, want to be judging their lives. However, at least 
with regards to their scientific achievements, you could say that this is a good example of regression to the mean. From the greatest physicist in the world to the foremost expert in a relatively restricted scientific field to a pretty good engineer, that's what the Einstein lineage looks like. Damn. He, well, Einstein set the bar pretty high. Let's admit that. Okay. So that's been answered. Uh, two, uh, another one was on uh, success. A question was asked about success. What is the definition of success? Well, this is the most realistic and sensible definition of success that I could find. At age four, success is not peeing your pants. At age 12, success is having friends. At age 16, success is having a driver's license. At age 20, success is having sex. At age 35, success is having money. At age 50, success is having money. At age 60, success is having sex. At 70, success is having a driver's license. At 75, success is having friends. At 90, success is not peeing your pants. Are you successful? You better be successful while listening to the show. And lastly, I don't know if you know this, but you know the voice of Siri? She had Her name is Susan Bennett, but she had no idea that she was the voice of Siri for at least 10 years. So here was the question. How did Susan Bennett not know she was the voice of Siri until after she was recognized by a friend? So Susan Bennett recorded hours and hours of voice snippets uh, for a use of speech construction database being built by a company called Scansoft. Susan finished the recordings and was never told how they would be ultimately used. So let's let's play our voice so you can hear what she sounds like. Hi, my name is Susan Bennett, and I'm a voice actor and the original voice of Siri. You're watching People in America. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? So how did that happen? I did the original Siri recordings in 2005, and Siri appeared on October 4th, 2011. And I didn't know anything about it until a fellow voice actor emailed me and said, hey, we're playing around with this new iPhone app. Isn't this you? And I went, really? So I went on the Apple site and listened, and I went, oh, oh my. <laughs> on the one hand, I thought, wow, I'm basically the, the new voice of Apple. That's pretty cool. But the fact that I apparently had auditioned without knowing it, <laughs> that really took me aback. And it took me two whole years to reveal myself as Siri because of that, because I knew it was going to affect my career. And I just wasn't sure how it was going to happen. You know, on the one hand, a lot of people who are not in the business are going, oh, you're Siri, that's so cool, that's so great. The people in the business are going, you're Siri. And maybe can't hear anything beyond the Siri voice. And so it's, it's like any, anybody that gets characterized as, as one particular thing. Siri, what are the top 10 books of 2017? Here's what I found on the web for what are the top 10 books of 2017. My, my, my. Could you imagine that? That's the thing that happens all the time when you're, when you're in stock footage. You never know. I mean, you could be famous in Japan right now. Um, you know, you could have taken a picture at the beach. And next thing you know, you know, you're famous in another country. 
Okay, so you, we've learned quite a lot today. One true sentences. Susan Bennett, Siri, Ernest Hemingway, Einstein's kids, and the secret to success. I'll see you on the next episode. Please keep sharing, keep downloading. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>